Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Well, God has created with design in terms of how individuals and the family and the church are to function in the world. And we certainly ignore those instructions and those designs uh, to our own detriment. We're living in a time in history when the culture is promoting a host of divergent and confusing messages about the family, when God's design is being twisted, in some cases just flat out disregarded. Marriage itself has been redefined and devalued. Marriage rates are in steep decline as people are delaying or simply avoiding marriage. Cohabitation is on the rise as a poor substitute for the covenant bond of marriage. God's beautiful design for sex has been twisted and distorted. Children are being devalued, not only reflected in abortion practices, but in the startling decline in birth rates. Families are choosing to not have children in some cases. I believe there's a crisis of parenting. There's a child-centered philosophy of parenting that is being promoted in our culture. The happiness of the child has become paramount, And some of those philosophies have slipped into the church. If we're not careful, we will raise a generation of narcissists who think they're the center of the universe. So all of these arenas of family life and God's design have been twisted and in some cases have even infiltrated the church. We want to let God's word shape our worldview in all of these areas. Uh, This morning we're going to look at another important area, one that has often been neglected, and that is singleness. I ran the numbers again for our local uh, assembly, our local congregation here. Nearly 40% of the family units in our church are singles. So that doesn't include children. In other words, I just group children with their family unit, right? So kids don't skew those statistics, Uh, That would be individuals college age and up, and would include those who have never been married, those who have been divorced, those who have been widowed. So I'm hoping that our time together, praying that our time together will be uniquely encouraging and affirming for single individuals in our midst. But the message is not for singles, at least not primarily. I'm also hoping and praying that those who are married would come to understand and appreciate and learn about singleness. Uh, It's so important, uh, even as Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 7, a text we're going to be looking at in a little bit, he looked at all these different stations of life, and he wrote all these instructions to singles and to marrieds. He wrote all the instructions to all the church. So I would suggest singles need to understand marriage. And married people need to understand singleness if we are to be all that God wants us to be as a church. Before I forget, I'm going to mention a couple of resources that uh, uh, you might want to tie into if you want to look further at this topic. Timothy Keller has written an excellent book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage. He has a great chapter on singleness, especially uh, at one point in the chapter addressing uh, those who are single and don't want to be single. And he just outlines some sort of steps and some cautions along the way. Really helpful stuff. I would suggest that really the whole book uh, has 
importance for singleness. He's pastoring in New York City, a congregation that I think he said was 80% single. So he's right, he's speaking and pastoring in that context, and that comes through in his, in his writings. Uh, Wendy Witter has written a little volume called A Match Made in Heaven, How Singles and the Church Can Live Happily Ever After. She's a Cedarville alum, uh, so I'll put in my plug for a fellow alum. Um, Again, specifically helping me think about singles and how singles relate to the church and how singles should relate to the church, how the church should relate to singles. It's really good. And then a newer one, and really small for those of you who are reading a verse, uh, Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Alberry. One of our own singles put me onto this, and it's excellent. It's a newer publication. And again, it's not really, it is, I think singles would be really encouraged by reading it, but it's actually written to the rest of us. Uh, to help us unpack and, you know, some of, the, some of the myths that sometimes we buy into about how we perceive singles. So a um, couple of, of good resources for you. So uh, today, here's our roadmap of where we're going. I want to talk for a couple moments about perspective. I want to share a brief cultural perspective and then a little bit of historical perspective on the topic of singleness And then I want to look in the text. Actually, three texts I want to look at briefly, kind of survey. We always want to make sure, again, that our worldviews are coming out of Scripture, so I want to give time for that. And then we're going to close with some action steps, some takeaways, some some practical uh, things that I think we can do in response to what we read here in the pages of Scripture. So first, cultural perspective. Singleness is on the rise. Singleness is on the rise. Nearly half of the adult population in the U.S. is single. That's up from 25% in the 1950s. So that's 128 million Americans. Okay, so singleness, it's a thing, okay? It's a a big factor in our culture. Uh, The average age of first marriage is 28 and rising, uh, young people are generally not getting married right out of high school. Some of that has to do with education and, and so on and so forth. They're delaying marriage, but uh, in some cases, marriage is just simply being avoided. Al Mohler uh, has sort of raised the red flag here in terms of what he sees happening. He says, by any calculation, the statistics indicate that young adults are marrying much later in life than at any time in recent human history. As a matter of fact, demographers have suggested that this new pattern of delay in marriage has established a a statistical pattern that in previous generations had been most closely associated with social crises like war and natural disaster. So he's just saying something really, really, there's been a radical shift (laughs) Here, this is not just a gradual thing, but something's happening here. Something's going on culturally as it relates to marriage and singleness. And so we certainly need to be keyed in on that as the church. Uh, There's a certain disillusionment with marriage. Um, Half of this generation are coming out of divorced homes. Again, so there's this understandable skepticism about the institution of marriage. A lot of People in this generation have not seen it work. They've not seen a healthy marriage. And so, you know, that's, that's certainly uh, another part of the stew here, all right? Uh, there are not clear pathways to marriage in our culture. Uh, I talked, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, later on about historical patterns, but uh, I talked with one Indian couple here 
uh, here this morning in the 9 o'clock service who are product of an arranged marriage. They smiled really big after the service this morning. I was giving a shout-out to them. But um, that's very strange to us, right? It's hard for us to conceive of that sort of an arrangement, of marrying somebody that I don't love. Um, but how, how does it work in our culture, right? I mean, um, where, where do you go to find uh, a, a spouse or a potential mate? You know, is it, you know, uh, the, the local bar? Is it, uh, you know, the church? Is it online? Is it, you know, what does this look like? And the pathways are not necessarily clear in our culture. Uh, the other thing I would say here, just by way of cultural perspective, is that the church has not always been an affirming place for singles. I think we have to be honest about this. Uh, matter of fact, I have a good college friend who is single up until just a couple of years ago, and he said to me, he says, I feel most single at church. Like my singleness is most uh, you know, and then think about it. That makes sense to a certain to a certain degree. In the workplace, you're going to have you know various people, men and women, who are there working on different tasks or whatever. But it, it, there's a there's a sense in which things are maybe oriented around couples, or we're here together as couples, those of us who are married. And so uh, there's more of an awareness that I'm I'm here alone, right? And that's a that's that's a hang up. That's a, that's a difficulty that many experience. That becomes an obstacle for attending church in some cases. So you know, I think we have, to, we have to be aware of those kinds of dynamics. So cultural perspective, historical perspective. Briefly, singleness would not have been considered a viable option in a Jewish context. So if we go back to sort of the ancient world, it just wasn't a thing. I said it's a thing now. It's, it wasn't a thing uh, in, in, a, in a Jewish context. And part of that, again, had to do with just the way life worked. Like, there wasn't a welfare system. There wasn't, you didn't put your money in, you know, an IRA in preparation for retirement. You know, you, you depended on your children to support you. So to be without a marriage, without children, was a, put, you, put you in a very vulnerable position. And then, of course, in a shame-based culture, there were certain other attachments, uh, stigmas associated with that. Well, of course, Jesus blew all that up, didn't he? I mean, really, by um, modeling singleness, uh, he was revolutionary, and really affirmed some things in terms of singleness. Uh, we see some things happening in the early church that really exalted singleness. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, 4th, 5th century, but he, um, he came out of a life of sexual sin, well documented in his autobiography and in, in the Confessions, and he uh, devoted himself to a life of celibacy. And ended up serving as the bishop in the church there in, in Hippo, North Africa. And so really, about at that point, there began to be a real rise in, in singleness in terms of sort of the, the, the preferred path for the mature, the really mature, committed Christians. So you have the, the monastic movement, right, with monks and nuns and, and that whole thing. And it was the 11th century when the Roman Catholic Church formally uh, declared that the priests must remain celibate. They must remain completely devoted to the Lord, uh, as it were, married to the church, right? And, and so these kinds of things really put singleness on a pedestal. Now, Martin Luther, during the time of the Reformation, kind of reacted against that. Uh, matter of fact, he took a wife, and you read Luther even write about it, it's a little uh, obscure as to whether he really loved her or whether he was just wanting to make a point that, uh, you know, 
that pastors ought to be able to marry, and he kind of lumped it in with a number of other distortions that were happening in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Um, But even with Luther, when you read his writings, it becomes clear there wasn't a real robust view of marriage. And so singleness, even then, was sort of the ideal. And I would suggest now that we've really swung the pendulum in terms of where we're at now, and singleness is largely denigrated uh, in in our culture. So uh, we bring all that perspective with us, right, as we come to the, the text and we seek to understand how we should be thinking about these things. So three texts that we're going to be in here this morning. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, here we read uh, chapter 1, verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So this broad declaration uh, of, of the goodness of creation. And so it's a bit surprising just a few verses later that, G, that uh, God issues a caveat. <laughs> the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So it's all good. And then just a little bit later, God says, it's not all good. (laughs) It's not good that man should be alone. I think part of what's going on there is not that God was confused. It's not that he thought it was good. And then the more he thought about it, he said, oh, maybe it's not so good. I think there was something going on there in terms of um, what God was doing with Adam. So you remember the little exercise that God had given him. Adam was created in God's image, right? Placed there to be God's representative on the earth, God's manager, over the creation, and he was asked to name the animals. And one of the things that happened in that is that Adam began to realize that there was no one else corresponding to him in the created order. All the animals had mates, and he was alone. So I think God was bringing him to that realization and then issues this great declaration that it's not good for a man to be alone. Something was incomplete. Something was lacking and so God determined to make a helper for Adam. So I think the, the real lesson out of this is that we are created for community. We're created for community. It's not healthy for anyone to live in isolation. Now certainly the focus here in Genesis 2 is on marriage. But in a fallen world now populated by many humans, there are many ways of experiencing vibrant community so that we are not alone, right? Most notably the church as the family of God, within God's plan of redemption, was to draw together a people, uh, a new family uh, for himself. So we see a little bit of foundational work there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Matthew 19 is uh, one of the other major texts. This happens to be a text where Jesus touches on this subject. passage uh, in Matthew 19 addresses the controversial topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, Needless to say, Jesus' teaching on marriage was extremely restrictive. Uh, He established a very high bar. And one of the ways we know this is not just by what what he said, but by how the disciples reacted. Here it is. The disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) 
When he began to realize that marriage was a covenant established, a permanent covenant until death separates us, the disciples were kind of taken back by that and thought singleness sounded like a pretty good option, right? This provides a springboard for Jesus to talk about singleness. Here's the last two verses in that section. This is how the conversation continues. But he, Jesus, said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So this is sort of jarring language to our ears, right? A eunuch, someone who's a male, particularly, whose reproductive organ has been cut off and is unable to relate sexually. I mean, this is the terminology that Jesus uses here. And he actually refers to three categories of eunuchs. It's very, very instructive, very raw, very real. Uh, number one, eunuchs who were born that way. Uh, we grieve over birth defects and, and just ways in which our bodies don't work like they uh, were designed to work, right? This is, this is life in a fallen world, and we encounter it in a lot of different ways. Um, there are also, the second category, also eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And again, if we think in the context of an ancient world of conquered peoples, this sort of thing, forced castration, I mean, this, this stuff happened. And oftentimes, individuals would be, uh, who, who were eunuchs, would be more efficient soldiers or servants. They didn't have other distractions of family uh, or, or a spouse. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is one such example, right? Here was someone who was very high up in the courts of Ethiopia, uh, he, he was a very effective servant, and that was in part because of his sexual status. He, he, he was completely devoted to the court uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, in Oriental cultures, these individuals were the keepers of the harem. So if you read Esther and that whole account, uh, you would find eunuchs in, in, in that particular narrative. I think... Uh, in our context, this could also refer to those who are single because of death or divorce, those who have experienced injury or disability, perhaps even those who have endured sexual abuse, who are unable to relate sexually in a normal way. Um, so they weren't born that way, but due to circumstances, uh, that's, that's their situation, right? And then a very interesting category that Jesus unpacks here, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. This is not referring to self-mutilation. Jesus is describing those who choose to live like eunuchs, those who choose to remain single and celibate. So people are single because of genetics, because of their life circumstances, or because of their own choice, right? So it's a very helpful section to kind of Help us process that a little bit. Now, let me just highlight a couple things again from this text as well. Singleness involves a call to celibacy. Now, certainly this is not the way singleness is viewed in our culture, right? Okay, let's just be clear. 
Matter of fact, in our culture, singleness is seen as providing maximum opportunity for all sorts of sexual behaviors, right? But God's design for singleness is for sexual abstinence and purity. So when Jesus talks about those who are unmarried or those who choose to remain single, he talks in terms of eunuchs. Because this is the implication. They will be those who do not engage in sexual activity. I think this comes through in some of Jesus' other teaching as well. When he talks about sexuality, uh, Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Two terms there that Jesus identifies in terms of sexual sin. Adultery, that involves um, sexual activity outside the covenant, the exclusive covenant marriage relationship, right? Involving a married person. So we're familiar with that term. This term sexual immorality is a broader term and most often is used to describe unmarried individuals who engage in illicit or sinful sexual activity. So the the King James Version usually translates this word as fornication. And this again would refer to, to unmarried people who are sinning sexually. So Jesus talks about both these categories, right? In other words, sexual sin isn't just for married people who sin outside of their marriage covenant, but it's also for single people who don't pursue sexual fulfillment in the context of marriage. So I think we have to understand that's what we're talking about here, okay? Singleness involves a call to celibacy. Singleness is not for everyone. This becomes very clear as well. the disciples say, wow, Jesus, that teaching about marriage is just, just blew my mind. Like, I, I'm thinking maybe it'd be better to remain single. And Jesus says, well, not everybody can, can handle this. <laughs> he says, literally, uh, not everyone can receive this saying. Literally, the word means uh, can make room for this or can accommodate this or has the capacity for singleness. So Jesus acknowledges that. This isn't for everyone. Jesus did not put singleness forward as the ideal state for every spiritually mature person. He did not require it of his apostles. So singleness is not for everyone. God never calls us to do something without giving us the grace to do it. Notice how this is framed here. Matthew 19, verse 11. Not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom It is given. It's a great word there, isn't it? (laughs) This idea of of something that is given to us. So I I don't think Jesus is describing a certain supernatural ability that God gives to single people. Um, I think he's just saying that, that God gives, not everyone can handle this. God gives his grace to those who are in this situation. I mean, look at it. He's just talked about those who are eunuchs by birth, those who are eunuchs by life circumstance, as well as those who are eunuchs by choice. But uh, God, God gives it to some. We say, well, maybe a gift. Maybe you say, I don't want. But my point is just that God, it's, 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 it's an assignment from God, and, and it comes with accompanying grace to be able to to live it out. 
I'm guessing there's a good number of singles in our congregation who are not single by choice. They don't necessarily desire to be single, but God gives us all that we need for the assignment he has put before us. Singleness should be considered in light of kingdom impact. Again, when he describes here, when Jesus describes those who are single by choice or eunuchs by choice, he speaks of those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So singleness should not simply be a lifestyle choice for those who want to avoid adult responsibility, live in their parents' basement, play video games well into their 40s. You know, this is not... This is not the, the paradigm for singleness. Uh, singleness ought to be embraced and chosen for purposes of kingdom advancement. This is perhaps why Jesus spoke of this all in terms of eunuchs. Eunuchs were models of devoted service without the distractions of marriage and family. And in some sense, singles ought to have a similar mindset if they've committed themselves to singleness. Not committed to themselves, but, but to Christ. Finally, singleness is a noble calling. Notice how Jesus closes this section. He says, uh, again, in verse 12... Uh, There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. If you would choose this path, if you feel you have capacity for this path, then take it. Uh, Jesus, in some level, commends singleness for consideration. Not for everyone, but it is a noble calling. A single person is not somehow incomplete. They, they, don't, they don't need fixing, right? They're not just a, a matchmaking project for those who are married. Singleness in and of itself is a noble calling that Jesus legitimizes here in his teaching. Now, the final text I want us to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is probably the most overt and expanded treatment of singleness in the scriptures. We are not going to look at it in its entirety, uh, but just draw out a few uh, observations from the text. So here we have verses 6 and 7. This is actually uh, a little ahead of where Paul read for us this morning. Paul writes, I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So each of us have been given a particular assignment from God. A particular assignment from God. Here's that language again of of Each of us have received a particular gift from God. And when Paul talks that way, he's talking about our marital status. (laughs) You know, he says, he makes no bones. He says, I I wish that you would remain as I am. I wish you remained single. I commend it to you. But everyone has been given their own gift from God. He's speaking of the particular assignment that he's given to them. And Paul's going to go through here 
and talk to the various groupings in the church. He's talking, first of all, to the unmarried and the widows. I think it's a category of people who had been married but are not married any longer, whether through death or divorce. And then he talks to believers who are married, and then he talks to a believer who is married to an unbeliever, and then he talks to virgins, or the ESV says the betrothed. There he's speaking to young adults who are contemplating marriage. So he's going to look at the, everybody's in a different life circumstance, right? And Paul recognizes that. And so he doesn't put singleness forward as the only way, but speaks in terms of particular gifts and assignments and callings that God has given to us. Paul goes on there in chapter 7 to say to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Once again, Paul keeps getting in his little plug here, doesn't he? But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So I think Paul essentially is saying something very similar to what Jesus said, that sexual intimacy is designed for the marriage relationship. So again, he's understanding singleness to be uh, a condition of celibacy. Uh, If a person really is compelled, a strong uh, sexual desire, uh, then then they need to pursue the route of marriage, right? That's Paul's delineation there. So again, he's making a very clear statement that sexual intimacy is, is designed for, reserved for the marriage relationship. The decision to remain single or to marry is a wisdom decision. So again here, we look in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed or concerning the virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So Paul frames it in a certain way here. He says, I have no command from the Lord. Who's the Lord? Not a trick question. Jesus. Yep. So he says, I have no, Jesus did not give overt instructions about this, okay? So I have no command from the Lord to relay to you, but I'm going to give you my judgment, my, my teaching to help you think through the matter, Okay. So again, the decision to remain single or to marry is a wisdom decision, not a moral decision. Singleness presents certain advantages and opportunities. Now we could look at the the drawbacks of singleness. Uh, There are some hard aspects uh, to singleness. Um, But Paul chooses to focus here on some of the unique advantages and opportunities of singleness. So he talks about the fact that singles are not encumbered with the many concerns of marriage and family. He says, uh, uh, I, I, I want to spare you from worldly trouble. And what he means by that is there's a lot of responsibilities that come along with marriage, right? There's difficulties. Uh, two sinful people trying to live together and... Um, and, and their attention, he says, is divided. A, a single person, man or woman, is able to sort of devote themselves fully to the things of the Lord, whereas a married person is divided in their attentions. They have certain responsibilities that they are called to fulfill, 
And um, they have to always think about that in, in light of their service for Christ. So Paul puts forward some of the unique advantages and opportunities of singleness. Uh, Rodney Clapp, in his book, Family at the Crossroads, suggests that marrieds and singles have complementary ministry advantages. And uh, to be overly simplistic, he says that married married, uh, couples have unique opportunities and capacities for hospitality. He says singles have unique opportunity and capacity for mobility. And he doesn't just mean geographic mobility, but there's a certain flexibleness that comes with singleness that can be used in a wonderful way to respond to needs, to, to go travel across the country to visit you know, a, 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 a family in need, you know, something like this. And so, uh, anyways, Paul chooses to focus here more on the positives of singleness. Now, I would just stop here, too, to, to just recognize that Paul doesn't, when, especially as you get to this section, verses 25 to 38, on virgins, the unmarried, who are making decisions about whether to marry or not to marry, I just find it interesting Paul doesn't talk about feelings. I mean, he does talk about this aspect of, of sexual passion, and, you know, that, that's some, certainly something that has to be processed. But um, all the language is about, and even Jesus in the Matthew 19 passage, it's all about kingdom mindset. It's all about how my, my gifts are, are utilized for the kingdom, uh, but I, I, my, my point in all that is I think we give too much weight to romance. It needs to be cultivated. Uh, good marriage has romance, but um, as this Indian couple in the back could testify, an arranged marriage, um, it, it works, and, and, and romance can grow. Uh, so I, I think sometimes the problem is if we make romance the thing, then we become disillusioned in our marriage. Then we think, oh, when, I, when, that, when I don't have sweaty palms anymore, you know, and my heart doesn't flutter. Oh, I must be out of love. Well, you know, that, that's just a little sliver of what marriage is all about, right? There's this covenant commitment that's involved in marriage. And I think Paul brings that across well as he addresses young people on the topic of singleness in marriage. All right. Wow. We're moving. All right, quickly. Here's some takeaways, some action steps. Think properly about singleness. Singleness is not better or worse than marriage. Uh, Tim Keller, again, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, noticed some unhealthy perspectives in his own congregation of predominantly single adults. Uh, Some Christian singles in my church, this is his testimony, some Christian singles in my church were raised in parts of the United States that are very traditional culturally, and there they got the you aren't a whole person until you're married mentality. (laughs) Then they moved to New York City where they were bombarded with the you shouldn't marry until you have professionally made it big and you find the perfect partner who won't try to change you in any way message. The first culture made them over-desirous of marriage. The second culture made them over-afraid of marriage. Both the longing and the fear live in their hearts sometimes in about equal strength at war with each other. So we, need to, we, we can't paint this glorious picture and idealize singleness or marriage. And we can't denigrate singleness or marriage. 
Uh, we need to just think rightly about singleness, but we need to view it as a noble and legitimate calling. We can't denigrate it. Do not find your core identity in marital status or sexuality. Uh, this is a big one in our culture. So much uh, concern and confusion about identity. And much of that identity language relates to gender and sexuality and sexual expression. Your identity, my identity, our identity should not be rooted in our sexuality or our marital status. Okay? Being married doesn't make you more human. Jesus was the consummate human, and he was single. Right? That, that should put an end to the conversation right there. Uh, we, ought to, we ought to find our identity as being created in the image of God, not in some of these other things. Pursue marriage or singleness for the right reasons. Again, I think there's in some cases a need to challenge particularly young men with the, with the, 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 the need to step up and, and grow up and take adult responsibility. Again, if, if your reason for singleness is just to, you know, do my own thing, and then that, that's a bad reason <laughs> to, re, to remain single. So I think we need to really think through this whole kingdom mentality that both Jesus and Paul put forward. Look beyond biological family to see the church as first family. Jesus, again, inaugurated a new family relationship. There's about four key texts where Jesus addressed family issues, and they're really awkward texts. It's like when Jesus' mother and brothers come to Jesus, he's doing teaching, and they interrupt Jesus, say, your mother and brothers want to see you, they want to talk to you, and Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Like, I mean, it really is very awkward. <laughs> You know, uh, Jesus wasn't trying to throw his mother under the bus, right? He was trying to communicate. He goes on to say, my mother and brothers are those who do the will of my father. He's calling us to a different level of spiritual family that becomes first family. So we we can see this in a number of different places, but here's just a little glimpse. 1 Timothy 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we are to relate to one another as family, uh, not distant cousin, not third uncle, twice removed by marriage, you know, but like immediate family. Uh, that ought to be the, the type of vibrant relationships we have with one another. Um, and so we need to really grow in our understanding there. And I'm just going to say that singles have a unique need for the family of God. We, all, we need singles just as much as singles need us. But there's a uniqueness to a single life and their need for the family of God, which means the rest of us have to key in on that. We need to be really cognizant of that. Uh, <clears throat> Sam Alberry, again, his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, he has a great section where he just unpacks his own experience and things that I think a lot of us don't think about as it relates to singleness, if you're, if you're married. So uh, he says in one section, a particularly pointed section there, I wondered, he had had a long, difficult stretch in terms of work responsibilities, he had been sick, there was just some things, he was kind of feeling down. 
And this is what he's thinking. He said, I began to wonder if anyone would even notice if I fell down the stairs and couldn't get up. I could imagine, and at some points couldn't stop imagining, being one of those people who dies but no one notices for weeks until the mailbox overflows or the smell gets too bad. You know, so just in, in his darker moments, you know, but he was moving to a new house, probably the house he, he, he was started to think, it's probably the house I'm going to die in. His mind started going there. You know, and it was just enough to kind of trigger some of these emotions. But a whole section of just things like that, like we need to practice empathy and we need to, to really understand uh, and appreciate the, the unique dynamics related to singleness. Um, see marriage as a signpost to a greater union. This is huge. And again, this isn't for singles. This is for married people. You need to hear this, okay? We are made for marriage, but the marriage that is experienced in this life is merely a signpost pointing us to our true union with God through Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul goes through this whole description. You think he's talking about husbands and wives. He says, actually, I'm talking about Christ and the church. But, oh, by the way, husbands and wives should learn from this as well. But the real issue... The real marriage union is that between Christ and his church. And in that sense, singles are not missing out on marriage. Alberry says the most fully human and complete person ever to live on this earth did so as someone who was single. And yet he called himself the bridegroom. <laughs> the marriage he came for was the one all of us who are in him will enjoy with him for eternity. So marriage, my friends, if you find yourself in a marriage that uh, has not fully satisfied you, it wasn't intended to. (laughs) It was never intended to fulfill all of your needs and longings and hopes. It's just a signpost pointing you (laughs) to the real marriage. Okay, And I think that's so important. When you get to the descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth, There's not going to be any marrying or giving in marriage. We almost get the sense that marriage is not going to be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. I don't understand all of that. But we think about it in light of this. When you've arrived at the destination, there's no need anymore for the signpost. It's been pointing us to that all along. We need to think more broadly in terms of procreation. Some great texts here. Uh, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. A couple chapters further in Isaiah, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then we have these types of passages from Paul, to Titus, my true child, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, to the entire church of Corinth, for, through, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There are more than one, there's more than one way to have children, and uh, if we read these texts right, some of the more significant ways of, of extending heritage uh, are in the spiritual realm. And uh, we need to think really well in those ways. Finally, affirm singles and treat them with full dignity. Invite them over for meals. 
Zytemas have invited Jim Seitzma. He had a standing Tuesday evening dinner ever since uh, Diane passed away. It's a wonderful picture of just maintaining that kind of a, a relationship. And fold them into the rhythms of family life. Brooke Christie has mentioned to me on a couple of occasions that she'd like to come wash somebody's clothes. That maybe wasn't an exact quote, but it was close. It was close. She says, I, I would love to just uh, kind of get paired up with somebody who's overwhelmed, maybe a mom. I, I, I could learn from her, and I could maybe help her. My singleness gives me some unique opportunities that way. Uh, I had a couple people raising their hands in first service, Brooke. So, I, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But just again, in normal things, bring, bring a single with you on vacation, you know, if you're, things maybe we don't always think about. Consider them for church leadership. Andrew Scott, uh, this is probably seven or eight years ago, we brought him on as a deacon, and, and I was ashamed. I, I had never thought about Andrew before. I think in my mind, and I, I, I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth, he wasn't fully grown up yet. He wasn't married. I, didn't, I wouldn't have ever said that out loud, but it was kind of, in my subconscious somewhere, I just never thought about Andrew was a great candidate to serve as a deacon, godly, faithful. But we need to make sure that we are extending full dignity and personhood to the singles in our midst. So it's my prayer that, again, if you're a, a single, that you would feel affirmed as we talk about the place of singleness in God's economy, particularly in this time and period in redemptive history. Um, But it's also my prayer that we as marrieds would understand that the church is bigger than our marriage or our biological family, and that we would look to fold others in to this bigger uh, concept, uh, bigger reality of the family of God.